Hey, this is Pastor Spencer with Racine Bible Church. You're listening to a sermon from a Sunday morning. As we come before a holy God to open his holy word, let's ask him in the power of his holiness to prepare our hearts and let's pray together. Oh, great and gracious and holy God, prepare our hearts now to learn from your word. More than that, prepare our hearts now to love your word. Your word is our law of love. May we be ruled by it. Your word is our physician of peace. May we be healed by it. Lord of love, give us this great gift. Open our hearts to learn and to love your holy word. For Jesus' sake, amen. Amen. God tells you what you should do, and then God says the reason why you should do that is because you would be like God if you did that. This is our verse. Be holy just as God is holy. And we hear verses like this and we traffic together in verses like this through the exposition of Scripture and sometimes it passes by us how incredibly strange that is. This is God telling you like how you should change your life to become like him. We are all influenced by the people around us. This is one of the great things about church. This is one of the important reasons why every single one of us needs to be in an adult Bible fellowship, an ABF, because when you are surrounded by people whose faith and hope and love is an example to you, then this can have a tremendously positive influence and impact on your life. This is also one of the greatest dangers in the world that we are influenced by the people around us. Every parent, every parent worries if they're awake and alive and loving about the influences on their teenage son or daughter because we know that our companions in our youth can be a corrupting and a corrosive influence Every single one of us is influenced by the people that we are around. I am, and you are too. But here in 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 15 and 16, it actually says that your standard that is supposed to influence you is God himself. 1 Peter 1, 15 and 16. But just as he who called you is holy... You also be holy in all your conduct, since it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. God is holy, and God created us to know him and to actually in some way become like him. That's why the text says, be holy because I am holy, essentially is what it's saying. If we could paraphrase God, God is saying something like this in this text. I am God, and I cannot be God 
without being holy. That's an essential element of who I am. I am God, and I can't be God without being holy. And you, 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 you cannot know me and enjoy me without somehow becoming a partaker of my own holiness. This is an amazing concept. It's intimidating, but it's also an invitation into a greater transformation than perhaps you've ever known. Our text is verses 15 and 16. The context is the beginning of the therefore in verse 13. Therefore, preparing your minds for action and being sober-minded, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. As obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance, but as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. Since it is written, you shall be holy for I am holy. And if you call on him as father who judges impartially according to each one's deeds, conduct yourselves with fear throughout the time of your exile. God says in verse 13, first, be hopeful in God. In verse 13, be hopeful in God. And then in verses 15 and 16, be holy like God. First, be hopeful in God. Second, now be holy like God. God is the source of hope. And not only is God the source of hope, God is the standard for holiness. And not only that, but the therefore means that God has called you by his grace this isn't just command. This is command that is the consequence of receiving his grace. So God's the source of hope. God's the standard of holiness. But God's also the source of salvation, the grace that makes this all possible. We're saved by grace, not by works. And then verse 17 says, not only is God the source of hope and the standard of holiness, but verse 17 says that God is the supreme judge in the end. And everything that we do or everything that we fail to do, God himself will be the judge. He's our savior and he is the ultimate judge. So we want to talk this morning from this text about the holiness of God and of his people. And even in this brief introduction, I really just wanted to tease out how almost unbelievable that and actually is. We're talking about God's holiness. And then I'm actually going to have the, so to speak, audacity with the text to say that holiness of God somehow, some way, should be changing you so that you become like that holy one. What an awesome concept. The holiness of God and of his people. First, defining and describing God's holiness go to a couple places. I think I listed them in the bulletin. You can turn there with me if you think you can keep up in this Bible sword drill, or you can just let me read it for you. The first place to turn is 1 Samuel chapter 2, and the first theologian whose works we are going to consult is a theologian named Hannah. And Hannah is not the last name of a man who's a professor of theology. Hannah is the first name of a woman who teaches us theology in 1 Samuel chapter 2. Hannah prays. 
And she says this in 1 Samuel 2, verse 1. My heart exalts in the Lord. My horn is exalted in the Lord. My mouth derides my enemies because I rejoice in your salvation. Verse 2, here it is. There is none holy like the Lord. And there is none besides you. There is no rock like our God. Hebrew text loves triads. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God. Here in 1 Samuel 2, verse 2, there's a trinity of negations. You see it? None holy like the Lord, none besides the Lord, no rock like our God. What he is saying is God is utterly set apart. God is completely set apart, and God is supremely set apart. There is none like him. He's in a class by himself. We would say God is unequaled, unrivaled, absolute in his being and perfection. Because God is without beginning and without end, he is incomparable in his eternity. Because God is utterly and completely morally pure, he is incomparable in the incandescence of his blazing, righteous, pure holiness. His holiness is the supremacy of his infinite worth by which he is incomparable compared to all that he has created. Beyond all measure in value, beyond all measure in worth. From Hannah, we can go back even further to the book of Exodus, the song of Moses after the parting of the Red Sea. He sings a celebration of God's holiness and he describes God's holiness this way in Exodus chapter 15, verse 11. In Exodus chapter 15, verse 11, who is like you, O Lord God, among the gods? Who is like you, majestic in holiness, awesome in glorious deeds, doing wonders? Comparable to the triad of negations in 1 Samuel 2, here we have a duality of questions. Two questions. Who is like you, O Lord, among the gods? Who is like you, majestic in holiness? Majestic in holiness. This question rings out twice, and it's unanswerable both times. Who is like God? The silence that answers that question is itself the definition of God's holiness. So many ways to define and describe God's holiness. God's holiness is the answer to the unanswerable question, who is like unto the Lord? Who is like him? Who can compare with him? Well, no one could. No one could. How do we think of God? How how can we conceive of how great, how high God is? When we're we're talking about God, man, we got to take a deep breath and say, hey, we talk about God here. God, God God is not the best in some sort of ascending stack of good, better, and best. God isn't the highest in the sense that he is the highest in an ascending order of beings. You know, like this 
Now, at least it used to be there. I don't know if it's there anymore. There's this brutal lie at the Smithsonian Institute. You start with a plankton, and then you get up to a, 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 um, some kind of a jellyfish, and then you get up to a fish and a frog and a bird, and then an ape. And then there's like a picture of Steve Miller, and then there's like, then, then there's angels, and then God. Like, this is, this is not, this is not the, way, the way that it works. The gap, the gap between a plankton and you is measurable. We can explain that gap. The gap between God and the plankton, just like the gap between God and you, is immeasurable because it's infinite, because he and he alone is creator and all else is creation. Is humanity special and dignified because we're made in the image of God? Of course. But the, the gap of infinity doesn't get bigger and smaller based on the nature of the created order or the created being. Our gaps between us created beings are certainly explicable and measurable, but not the one between us and God. How do we think of God's holiness? I can't uh, define God's holiness, ultimately. That's why I'm talking about defining and describing God's holiness. We, we say as much as we can about his holiness, which is true, but his holiness is transcendent. We read from Isaiah 6, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty, called in the old-fashioned language the tri-hagion. Hebrew uses the repetition in the book of Genesis, when they threw somebody in a pit, it doesn't say a very deep pit. The Hebrew says he, they threw him in a pit, pit, pit. <laughs> that, that's how they say very. So that the, the holiness of God is as far as we can see from the extant scriptures, the only, the, 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 the only one of his, so to speak, attributes that's, that's cubed linguistically to try to show how, how inexplicable it is. That's why I think it's a, I think it's a good guess or, or, or a good, um, it, it's a good reasoning, it's, it's a good reasoning through to say that holiness, holiness really can function as an attribute of God that summarizes and crowns all of his other attributes. The Bible does seem to indicate that, that holiness is special somehow like that. God's holiness is his perfection not by which he meets a standard. God's holiness is his perfection by which his utter uniqueness and separateness and transcendence is the reason there are any standards in the first place. God's holiness is not that he reaches a measure. God's holiness is the eternal reality upon which all measures are even intelligible or, or somehow knowable in the first place. He is the standard of standards. He is the measure of all measures. This is the core of our worship. The holiness of God in relation to the other attributes of God can, can I think, rightly be said that holiness isn't a, a mere attribute of God. It's in some way a summarizing of all of his attributes the outshining of all that he is. 
Stephen Charnock, in his wonderful book on the existence and attributes of God, he, he defines or describes the attributes of God almost as if they are human features. And he says, power is God's arm. Omniscience is God's eye. Mercy, he says, writing in the 1600s, is God's bowels. We would say God's heart. He says eternity is God's duration, but holiness is his beauty, his beauty. Psalm 92, verse 9 in the KJV, oh, worship the Lord in the beauty of holiness. I think ESV translates it splendor. Worship the Lord in the beauty of holiness. Tremble before him all the earth. We could make an imperfect analogy to the sun. Uh, so not this, not this morning, but uh, yesterday, I was up uh, before the sunrise and I pulled up the, the, the blind in my, the, the blinds in my study where I sit and read the Bible and pray. And I, I, I watched the sun yesterday and it was a clear sky. And yesterday, for some reason, the, the sun, when it first peaked over the horizon, was, was the, the deepest, most vibrant orange red that I've seen in a long, long time. And I just watched that thing rise and I just, uh, I cast my burdens on the Lord. I, I just, I needed that time to just reflect on God's goodness and God's greatness. In an imperfect analogy, maybe we could talk about the holiness and the glory of God like, like, the, like, like the sun. The glory of God is the radiance, the outward expression of the beams of that sun, the light the beams, how it goes out is his glory. But then we could say the fire, the fire is actually his holiness. It's an imperfect analogy. We're trying to understand a God who is beyond our comprehension. But we know that the righteousness, the faithfulness, the justice of God are his commitments to reveal his glory in all of the earth. And we know that his holy, holy, holy nature is the fire behind all of that. His glory radiates all around. His holiness is the fire out of which expresses that glorious righteousness. So we're defining and describing God's holiness before we get to the second part, which is developing our own holiness. And before we switch to the second part, with your permission, I want to I wanna bring you down to the deep, 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 deep end of the theological pool. Anytime we speak about God, we really should take a breath and say, hey, we're, we're, we're talking about God. And so we're talking about one who is, who is beyond our comprehension. A.W. Tozer, in his fine uh, work on the holiness of God, uh, he, he says this. I, I don't even know if I could say this, but I wish that I could. <laughs> he says this. I'll tell you something. I want God to be what God is, the impeccably holy, unapproachable, holy one. I want him to be and to remain the holy one. I want his heaven to be holy, and I want his throne to be holy. And I'm sure I could say all of that, but here's where he ends it. Where I'm, I, I, I hope I could say this. He actually, curiously, he ends this, this thing about saying, I want God to be holy. Of course we do. And then he says this, 
I don't want God to change or modify his holy requirements, even if it were to shut me out. I want God to be holy. Wow. We're talking about God and his, his inexpressible holiness. And so as I try to bring us to the deep end of the theological pool where I could never touch the bottom, we have to say we're, we're, when we speak about God, we are not just grasping into mystery. This book is true. And God has made himself knowable infallibly in this book. We can have a sure and certain hope in who God is and what God has promised. We can know the truth about God, but we cannot know comprehensively all of the truth about God. Of course not. We can speak accurately about God, but we cannot speak exhaustively about God. And so here's where I want to challenge our thinking, my own thinking. We speak about God's holiness, and we say the fact that God is holy means that God is separate from sin. That's true. God is holy because he's separate from sin. But I wonder if that starts in the wrong place. Because what is true of God was true of God eternally before there was a creation. All of his attributes were in him before there was a world in which to exemplify and express those attributes. Every attribute of God is true of God eternally in his own inner Trinitarian essence, ontologically to use the philosophical word, not economically. So what is true of God was true of God before creation. Now I'm bringing you into the deep end of the pool of theology for a minute, but when I say God is holy and everything that God is, he eternally was, to say God is holy in the sense that he's separate from sin is true, but it's incomplete because, brothers and sisters, sin is not eternal. There was a time when there was a world without sin. And in that world, God was gloriously holiness, holy. So it, it can't merely be his separation from something that hadn't even happened yet. If sin is not eternal and God was holy before there was sin, then what does this mean? This limitation of language is also shown as a corrective. I've said this before and I, I don't want to say it anymore. You hear somebody well-meaningly say this, God is love, but he's also holy. I don't want to say that anymore. God is love, but he's also holy. As if God's love is warm and good and God's holiness is somehow cold and bitter. This is not true, beloved. This is not the case. The, the deepest and richest Reformed theology that I know speaks of God's holiness as the purity of God's loyally devoted love in himself. This is why Jonathan Edwards says, if holiness in the creator consists chiefly in love to himself, then holiness in the creature must consist chiefly in love to the creator as well. God's holiness can perhaps be understood as God, the purity of God's devotion 
in himself between the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Eternally, they have been devoted to each other in the holiness of pure love. Absolute, permanent, exclusive, irreversible devotion and love between the three members of the Trinity within our triune God. Holiness is the intensity of that love. That's the fire of the sun in an imperfect analogy. Holiness is the intensity of that love that flows within the very being of God between the persons of the Trinity. So perhaps holiness in the triune God is the perfection of the purity of the absolute love between the Father and the Son. And then, and then, God says to you and to me, be holy like that. From defining and describing God's holiness, can we take a, a, a reverent stab at what it would mean to define and develop our holiness somehow like unto that. In 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 15, it says, but as he who called you is holy, you also be holy. The as could be translated just as. It's, a, it's an equivalent comparison. Just as he who called you is holy, you also be holy. Since it is written, verse 16, you shall be holy for, because I am holy. In verse 16, our holiness is predicated upon the very holiness within the triune God. How does this work out? Well, just as is a divine standard which is impossible to meet. That's why verse 13 gives us the word grace, setting your hope fully on the grace that'll be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. As obedient children, don't be like you were, but as he who called you is holy, be holy in him. The calling is a gracious call. The calling is not a performative call like, like God's like, I'm going to pick up and care for you after you do enough. It's a gracious call. It's an electing call. It's a, it's a, it's a sovereignly merciful call. Just as, makes, just as God is holy makes the divine standard impossible. The word grace and the word calling are the provision that meets the impossibility. This is salvation by grace through faith. And so we can talk about developing and describing and defining our own holiness, the holiness of God and of his people. So there is a sense and there is a truth that part of God's holiness means that God is separate from sin. That's not the whole of our definition, but that's certainly a part of it. First uh, John 1 verse 5 makes moral purity the, the, the measure of God's holiness because First John 1 5 says, God is light and in him what? There is no darkness at all. And it's talking about moral behavior in the, in the following context. God is light and in him there's no darkness at all. The complete absence of sin in God. Or this book from, this verse from the book of Habakkuk, 
that I memorized in the old King James Version. It's Habakkuk speaking to God. And he says, thine eyes are too pure to look upon evil and thou canst not look on wickedness with favor. God's moral purity is such that he cannot even look upon sin with favor, much less could he commit it or could it have a place in his character. So moral purity, separation from sin, is a part of God's holiness, and that is a part of God's holiness which we are called to replicate and imitate as his obedient children. So we could start there. What is holiness? In this passage in 1 Peter, it's the opposite of the evil desires. You see that in verse 14. Don't be conformed to those old evil passions, but as your father who called you is holy, take on his nature and be holy. So it is the opposite of evil. It is resisting immoral impulses and pursuing moral purity. It is. It's, it is being conformed to the nature of God and his holiness. It is. It is a separateness from all that we were before. It is being different from the world around us. That's why the, there's three imperatives here. The setting your hope in verse 13. And then verse 14, no longer conforming to the old passions. And then verse 15, positively, being holy. And the all in verse 15, but as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. That all is almost like we can take the outline of entirely the rest of the book of First Peter and it all cues off of that all. Because he's saying, now that God's called you, be holy in all your behavior. And then he begins to show that holy behavior means, verse 22 of chapter one, loving one another from pure hearts. And he shows what it means in chapter two, verse one, when he says, it means putting away all malice, deceit, and hypocrisy, and loving each other. And then he says further in chapter two, what it means is, um, is, is uh, verse 11, abstaining from the passions of the flesh. And then he says in verse 13, what does it look like to be a holy citizen in an evil empire? And he talks about that for a little while. And then he talks in verse 18, servants and masters, what does it look like to be holy in all your conduct as an employee in a difficult and impure workplace? And then he says in chapter 3, what does it look like to be a holy wife? in a difficult marriage. And then he also says in chapter three, what does it look like to be a holy husband, to love your wife and serve her and care for her? And then he says in chapter four, what is it like to be holy when people accuse you of things you didn't do? How can you follow Christ when that happens? And even in chapter five, he says, what does it look like, look like to be a holy elder in the church, in all your conduct, in all your relationships? And we're going to see, as we get through the book of 1 Peter in the year 2029, we're going to see that, 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 that pursuing that holiness is not, it is putting off and saying no, but it is also putting on and saying yes. And here, 
here is where I hope that deep end of the theological pool can help simplify what it means to say no to sin and yes to righteousness, right? Because he, he, he is saying that you can no longer conform to those old passions. Why not? Because now you've taken on, so to speak, the divine nature. And so you love the Father like the Son loves the Father. And you love the Son like the Spirit loves the Son. And that love propels you away from the immoral things that would grieve the heart of the Spirit and that cause the Son of God to be crucified and bleed and those things that would ignite the joyous holiness of the love of God. See, where before your out-of-control passions to gratify your own desires, they led you around like a hook in your nose. Now you say no to those passions, not because you've reached a Zen state of passionatelessness, but because now you have a passion to love the Father like the Son loves the Father and to love the Son of God the way the Holy Spirit loves the Son of God. And it's that love that drives you away from what's wrong and toward what's right. Those who are becoming holy like that will definitely be different. I said we could outline the whole book by that word all in verse 15. We could also outline the whole book as, as a, 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 a huge like caricature outline of how totally and completely alien and different you are now from everybody in the world. As a wife, you live as a wife differently because you're in Christ, different than worldly wives do. As a husband, you live as a husband differently than worldly husbands do. As an employee, as a citizen, all of it, all of it. You see, because you used to go along and you can no longer go along, there is an utter alienation and dissonance between me and the world because there is an increasing conformity and harmony between me and the eternally holy triune God. And this pushes the transformation. This will have an impact. First Peter says in almost every chapter, First P Peter says something like this, and it's realistic. It'd be realistic for me to say this to you. In almost every chapter, Peter says this, hey, I'm telling you that now that you're in Christ, you've got to do this. Oh, and by the way, when you do this, people around you who don't like Christ, they're not going to like you anymore. Be ready for that. Be ready for that. There's a dissonance, a dissonance and a disconnect between me and worldliness. And there is also, because the world has become so topsy-turvy and so perverted, there is a dissonance between what God calls beautiful and desirable and what the world calls beautiful and desirable. And so because I've made that switch, I may in fact be persecuted or jailed or um, uh, stifled in some way because of that. And I'm ready for that because Jesus Christ is altogether lovely and he is mine and I am his. I hope you can see how understanding holiness within the very triune nature of God, that deep end of the pool, can help the one thing I want to do is I want that to help simplify, simplify 
the call to holiness in your life. In other words, I also want it to beautify the call to holiness in your life. I don't know why it is that sometimes holiness, it just comes across metallic and cold and distant as holier than thou. Biblically, holiness is the opposite of cold. Holiness is the heat of divine love that radiates the beauty of God. And so the pattern of holy living, you see it all over the place in the New Testament. You saw it in the Pharisees and Sadducees. The pattern of holy living, if we miss out on the deep end of the theological pool, if we miss out on that, then the pattern of holy living becomes this. My ability to remember 618 commandments and then keep them all spinning like so many balls that I'm juggling in the air. The call to holiness doesn't undercut the commandments. They're all there and they're all good and they're all meant to be remembered. But the call to holiness is, is an inner desire and love that makes those commandments no longer a long list of legalism that I have to hang on to, but it makes those commandments the very moves in the dance that I was created to dance, the very thing that I was created to run in. Why else do you think Psalm 119 says, I will run in the way of your commandments for you have set my heart free. Forgetting God's commandments and following your own stinky instincts is slavery. Oh, but remembering the commands of God is no longer slavery. It is the liberty of love. It is, it is, it is. If you are burdened because you think that pursuing holiness means you have to have some kind of encyclopedic knowledge of every clause of every Bible verse and every directive and every prohibition, this is not what is expected. Holiness is a love for God that makes the law of God and the commands of God what, what I treasure in my heart and the way that I want to walk in for all of my life. And so we could say, though anything we say isn't completely comprehensive because we're talking about God, we could say that holiness is love for God. We could say that holiness is loyalty to God. We could say that holiness is choosing to show my loyal love for God no matter what consequence that brings to the world and no matter that that immediately cuts off the gratifications of my lusts because now my loyal love for God and understanding his loyal love for me is what satisfies my soul forever. Church, let your holiness be demonstrated as the beauty of your loyal love for God. Because in Jesus Christ, God has perfectly loved you. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I... Heavenly Father, I just want to pray something that I could pray every time I preach, but I particularly 
feel it today. Uh, God, I have tried to talk about that which is way, way beyond me. And I ask that my words, imperfect and incomplete as they are, would have helped and would help your precious children and lambs and church members to understand your word and to love your law. Heavenly Father, open our eyes to your beauty. Open our eyes to the liberty that belongs to the children of God. Open our eyes to the, the wonderful fact that your commands are not burdensome, but they're the treasure and delight of our heart. Oh, help us to love you, to show that love by loyally obeying you. Come what may, strengthen us that we might glorify you in the beauty of your holiness. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. To find out more about our ministry, contact us at racinebible.org. Thank you for listening.